Good morning, everybody. Good to be back. Last Saturday uh, and Sunday, we were at the Notre Dame Cathedral. Some of you heard recently that it it uh, experienced a horrible fire. The Notre Dame Cathedral is a church that's 850 years old, and it was in this church that King Henry VI of England was crowned the king of France. A lot of people don't know that. In 1431, Napoleon was crowned the emperor of France in 1804. Joan of Arc was declared a saint in 1909. Uh, some of you may remember Victor Hugo's uh, story, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, all of it taking place here. And uh, some, of you, uh, some of you may have been here, may have not. We are a few of the last people to see Notre Dame as it was. Absolutely a beautiful and stunning building. But then uh, some of you know that, that uh, this beautiful old cathedral started on fire. I took this picture 24 hours before this happened. Absolutely shocking. And by the way, I didn't do this, <laughs> just, so, just so you know. <laughs> We look, at this, uh, we look at this disaster, this catastrophe, and, uh, and we recognize that indeed it is a disaster. 850 years of history gone up in smoke. Uh, Notre Dame is called the mother of all churches of Europe. And so it is indeed um, uh, a sad loss. The president of France, President Macron, he gave his people hope when he said that we will rebuild the Cathedral of Notre Dame in five years. And already people have come forward, very wealthy people, uh, pledging over 100 million euros um, each. And, and then, of course, much more after that. I think, the, I think that they may be up to a billion uh, dollars right now. Uh, in fact, it's going to cost, they say, at least $8 billion dollars. To rebuild that. And you, you heard that right. I didn't say 8 million, I said 8 billion. A huge, huge amount of money. Well, some of you are wondering, Pastor Ellen, what has this got to do with Easter? Well, I just wanted to show off that I was in France. <laughs> that's, not, that's not true. Uh, the, reason I, the reason I show this is that really a metaphor for Resurrection Sunday. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, we, uh, we were all aghast and, and sickened by the fire. They destroyed one church building. But did you know that on that very day when, when this building was destroyed by fire, that over 150,000 people died? You didn't know that. 100, over 150,000 people died on that day. In fact, there's 150,000 people that die every day around the world. Let me just point out something to you right now. A human life, one human life is worth far more than that building, worth far more than $8 billion. A human life is so precious that Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to die, to pay the great cost, the great price, to rebuild you and me. And here's what you need to know. That work has begun. 
Now, just as President Macron on, on the day that Notre Dame, the Cathedral of Notre Dame went up in flames and declared, we will rebuild, I want you to know something. On the day that Adam and Eve took the fruit in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, that day that their lives were set on fire and ravaged by sin, I want you to know something. God made a declaration. The president of the universe made a declaration in Genesis 3, verse 15. We call it the Proto-Evangelium, the very first evangelistic message in the scripture found in verse 15. And God declared this. He declared that Jesus would crush the head of Satan even as Satan would strike his heel. I want you to know something today. When we celebrate Easter, we're celebrating the new life that is ours in Christ. When we sat in Notre Dame last Saturday, we watched people coming and going. We didn't realize that we were, where we were sitting was, a, was sort of a special place for the people that attended that church. It was right at the very back. And if you stood up and turned to the right, you would see the crucifix, Jesus hanging on the cross. And apparently it's a, it's a place where people would come to pray. I don't know if others in my group noticed it, but I noticed that there are people kept coming there and would sit there and cross themselves, pray, look at the, look at the crucifix, Jesus hanging on the cross. One man even came with his camera and did a selfie with Jesus. <laughs> so I did one too. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one lady, she sat there, she went through her genuflections, and then she got up and she started kissing the, all the columns uh, in the old cathedral. I want you to know something today. Jesus is not hanging on a cross, and he's not in a grave. He is the risen Lord, the risen Savior. And right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible tells us that he's making intercession for us. He's praying for us. He's, he's there before God, speaking on your behalf. Now, I don't know if you know this, and I think most of us do, but let me just remind you. There is, there is a creature. His name is Satan. And in case you don't know what Satan means, it means accuser, accuser of the brethren. And Satan goes before the throne of God and he accuses you and declares that you are unrighteous, you're not deserving of God's kindness, you're not deserving of his love. But here's the thing, folks. Standing there beside the Father is Jesus. And all he has to do is show the Father his hands and his feet that were pierced for you and me. What you need to understand, and, and everybody here knows what I'm talking about when I say this, every time Satan comes whispering in your ear, telling you that you're a lost cause, there's no hope for you, there's no way God could forgive you of your sin, you've gone too far, you're a horrible person, and that's what Satan does, he's an accuser. He just keeps on whispering in your ear, telling you how terrible you are. What you need to remember is that Jesus Christ is a risen Savior. He is your Lord. He loves you. He died for you. And when God looks at us, that is all who put their faith in Jesus, God sees his Son. That, my friends, is the power of the resurrection. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you and for me, but he also 
lives for you and for me. He lives before the Father making intercession for you and for me. So the Bible's clear that no matter how sinful you have been, no matter how many mistakes you have made, no matter what you have done, if you've put your faith in Christ, well, the psalmist puts it like this. God doesn't remember your sin. You might remember it, and I can assure you Satan remembers it, but God doesn't. Now think about that for a moment, because some of you are here today defeated by your past, defeated by the mistakes you've made. Your life would not be characterized by the word victory because you've been listening to the voice of the accuser. Today, what I'm hoping you're going to hear now is the voice of the Savior who loves you, has died for you, and is making intercession for you before the Father. That, my friends, is really what the gospel is all about. That's what Christianity is really all about. About the life, the new life, that is ours. Or, can I put it like this, the resurrection life that is ours through Christ. Now, those who have no hope are, are sad individuals indeed. People give up the will to live. They lose their courage. They find it difficult to go on because they have no hope. You've heard me say this before. It's a reason why people go and buy lottery tickets. Because in that moment that they're waiting for the announcement of the great number... They're thinking, this might be my day. And they have the hope and the courage to go on and face another day. Until the day that the draw is made and they discover, oh, I lost again. I know I'll buy twice as many tickets next time. And once again, they've lost the draw. It's interesting. I asked a gentleman why he bought tickets Every, and he, he, never, he never won anything, won $2 here, $2 there, but never won the grand prize. I said, why do you keep doing it? He says, because in that moment, when I buy the ticket, I feel there's just hope. And it gives me the courage to go on. And I said to him, do you realize that, that there is a greater hope? A hope greater than possibly winning a jackpot? It's a hope in Jesus Christ. And if you put your hope in him, you'll have the courage to face not just today, but tomorrow, next year. In fact, you'll be able to face your whole life with the assurance that God is on your side and God loves you and he's not forgotten about you. Hey, you know what? There's a people called the Corinthians. Some of you have heard of the books of the Bible called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Actually, those, uh, those letters were sent to the church in the city of Corinth, which I've been to a number of times. But there was some question about whether or not people are really raised from the dead, whether Jesus was really raised from the dead, whether, in fact, there really was a resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul has got to address this question because people were saying there is no resurrection. Now, I'm going to tell you today 
And you're going to see in just a moment when I read. If there is no resurrection, there's no Christianity. It all collapses. It all falls apart. You, you take out the resurrection factor, and there's no faith. You, 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 you wasted your, your time coming to church this morning. You could have gone to Denny's for a grand, a grand slam. You could have done something else. You could have gone for a trip. But you're here this morning because you know there's something to this. So listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Paul says, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. I remember when I became a Christian, I was just a young boy. But I remember, I remember the stirring of God in my heart. There's something stirring inside of me. I, I thought it was going to burst. And I was given the opportunity to ask Jesus into my life and, and to confess my sin, which I did. I felt in that moment like the slate had been washed clean, that all, the, all my sin was gone. In fact, I felt as light as a feather. I felt I could fly. Folks, that is the power of the resurrection in the life of those who put their faith in Christ. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then you're still in your sin. And you still have that burden of sin, of guilt, and of shame. Wow. Paul says in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. There is no heaven. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. What deluded people we would be. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Jesus was the first one to be resurrected from the dead. And every single person who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ will someday be resurrected as well. That, my friends, is the gospel. That's the good news that we believe in. And Paul says, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Adam and Eve introduced sin into this world. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. But along comes Jesus, and he reverses the power of death and of the grave. This is what Easter is all about. It's a story of the great resurrection of Jesus Christ who leads the way for all who will follow him. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ today, here's the good news. It's not just for this life, but it's for the life to come. 
Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and so will you, and so will I, if we believe. Now, the disciples understood the importance of the resurrection. They understood that if you take away this, this component, then the whole thing collapses. It, it doesn't work. It falls apart. And so for one of the very first creeds that was taught to the early church, we, found in, we find in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do something that they did 2,000 years ago. We are going to recite the very first creed of the church. And the Apostle Paul lists it uh, here for us, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7. And before we start, let me just say this. In this time, there was no New Testament. At this time, many people did not or could not read. Uh, So this is something that, that believers would have known off by heart. It's the story of Jesus Christ and his work dying and rising from the dead. But more than that, it's a story of the proof that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. I was reading of a professor, uh, Oxford, Oxford University professor, saying of, of all of the uh, historical events that he has ever read or studied, he said the resurrection of Jesus Christ is by far the most substantiated of, of all that we study or read about in history. And so let's read it together, shall we? Let's all kind of read it together or just follow my lead. Here we go, ready? I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. When, When the apostle Paul shares this with the believers in Corinth, most of the people who had witnessed the presence, the appearance of Christ after his death and resurrection, he says that most of them were still alive at the writing of this letter. This is one of the, actually, one of the very earliest writings in the New Testament. But here's what you need to see. You need to see that at the core of our faith is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the proof of the resurrection. Now, this is critical, folks, to your faith and to mine. Because without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. The whole thing falls apart. Now, the reason I wanted you to see that is because I want you to understand that what is a spiritual reality for many of us is also a historical reality. There is proof that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he writes this, says, oh, and by the way, I also saw him. In verse 8 of chapter 15, he says, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw Jesus. Now, when did the Apostle Paul see Jesus? Because Paul did not become a Christian until after Jesus ascended to the Father. 
Some of you know the story. The Apostle Paul is on his way to Damascus. He's, he's going there to kill Christians. He is, he is a Jewish man, a zealous Jewish man, who sees Christianity as a threat to the Jewish faith. And so he is on a rampage. He's, he's traveling throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. He's traveling everywhere he can to kill Christians off. And it's on the, his way that Jesus Christ appears to him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and Paul says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And of course, you know the story of what happens next. One of the greatest conversions in all of history, the Apostle Paul, who is a murderer of believers, now becomes a Christian. And not only does he become a Christian, folks, but he becomes, well, the vessel used by God to write so much of the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. So many of us have had doubts about the faith. The fact of the matter is our faith is constantly under attack. We, we, you turn the TV on, they're, they're mocking us, making fun of Christianity, making fun of the, the scriptures, making fun of the truth of the scripture. They're mocking the fact that Jesus died. They're mo- like you never saw such things 25 years ago. It's just, this is really heated up right now because so many people just don't believe. And for some of us here today, we're tempted to believe those who don't believe. And by the way, this is why it's so critical that you and I be a people of the Word of God. You and I have got to be reading the Scripture on a daily basis so that the Spirit of God can speak to us and can open our eyes to see the truth. And so you may have doubts. You may have questions. I know there's times when I have doubts. That might shock you because you're saying, Pastor Allen, you're, you're, you're a pastor. <laughs> it's what you do for a living. How could you have doubts? Well, the fact is, is that everybody here has moments when we have doubts. But I can tell you this. I, I'm, I'm not wallowing in my doubts. Those moments when I feel doubt, when Satan attacks me and tempts me to doubt, then all I have to do is stop and remember this. I just need to remember what the facts are. I need to remember that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, and he appeared to many people. And what else do I remember? I stop and consider what Jesus Christ has done in my life. I remember that day when I became a Christian, and all my sins were washed away, and I felt light as a feather. You know that burden of guilt, that burden of shame from your sin? What a glorious feeling it is when that's all washed away. I remember that. I remember that the disciples, every one of them except John, was crucified, was put to death for his faith. Now, what kind of an idiot would say, yes, kill me for a lie? Paul was beheaded in Rome by Nero around 66 AD. Apostle Peter was also put to death They say he was crucified upside down. Who would submit to this for a lie? Peter was the one that saw this. He he could not deny it because he saw it. I don't remember that. And I say, oh yeah, it's real. You think of all the apostles except John, all dying for their faith. Chuck Colson, who worked as, well, they called him the hatchet man, in Richard Nixon's, President Richard Nixon's administration. 
He said there's no way that a group of men could maintain a lie like that. They would start giving in instantly. He said that's exactly what happened. When they started coming after Richard Nixon's men, they all started blabbing and singing like birds. They all they started telling the truth. They could not hold the lie. But you see, with these disciples, every one of them died for their faith. They died because what they believed was not a lie. It was the truth. And you've heard historians say, oh, yes, well, there was a theory that Jesus wasn't completely dead. He was almost dead, but not quite dead. He was, still had some oxygen left in his system. When they put him in the grave, the coolness of the grave revived him. And then he, like, you've heard that. The apostles saw for themselves. Jesus gave up his breath on the cross. He died, was put in the grave. Not one of them said, oh, it wasn't true. In fact, they all died believing, except John, who would later write the revelation at the end of the Bible. Now, here, here's, what, here's what you and I need to understand. Because some of you are wondering, well, what does this have to do with me? How does the resurrection affect me? Well, let me, let me just begin by telling you about a book I read when I was in junior high called Great Expectations by Dickens. Anybody read that? It's a story about a young man by the name, well, his nickname was Pip. And he had been kind to uh, a, a criminal. And next thing you know... An attorney was visiting his, his house and said that, that there had been a legacy left for him and that he was now to prepare to become a real gentleman. And if you're a gentleman in England, well, you're a rich man. And he was constantly visiting in the home of Miss Havisham, a wealthy, eccentric, rich, rich spinster. He thought for sure that this old spinster was his benefactor or benefactress and he he got the nice clothes he dined and fellowshiped with the wealthiest of the wealthy till one day he discovered that in fact miss havisham was not his benefactress this young man who'd become arrogant and proud of his new status, his new wealth. He discovered that, in fact, his benefactor was actually a rich criminal who'd just come back from Australia. Pip is left devastated. His life is, is a shambles. It's a ruin. He's utterly horrified, he's humiliated at the fact that his benefactor is nothing more than a rich, rich criminal. Now here's the thing. This young man who had great expectations, great hope, wakes up one day to find that his, his hope has been destroyed, his expectations have been destroyed. Some of you are here today exactly like Pip, humiliated by life. Your hopes, your dreams have come to nothing. You have experienced great sorrow, great suffering. 
your marriage, your business, your relationship with your friends, your career, it's a shambles. This is where, my friends, the resurrection life comes into play. What Satan has meant for your destruction, God wants to use for his glory and for his honor. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 8 when he says, for our God works all things together for his good. God is not finished with you. Satan wants to destroy you, wants to destroy your life, wants to destroy your joy. But there's somebody who's greater, and his name is Jesus. And the Bible tells us clearly that Jesus is the one who has conquered the grave, he's conquered death, and he's conquered Satan. And all who live in this resurrection life live in this victory that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is, is so often we're not living in that victory. We're not living that resurrection life. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. How to live in this resurrection life that is full of victory. Tears and sorrow and fear and weakness has been your daily experience. But I'm going to tell you that should not be if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And what I want to talk to you today about today and in the next few weeks is how you can live in the victory that Jesus Christ purchased at the cross. Some of you are sitting here today thinking, man, I'm ready for a victory. I need a win. Things have got to get better. For some of you hit rock bottom, you just think it can't get worse. Let me tell you something. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you follow him as he invites you to, it's a game changer. Jesus wants you to live in this resurrection life. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul says to the Christians who are in the city of Philippi. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I think everybody here today would say, yeah, I want to know that power too. That's pretty mighty power. A power that raised somebody from the dead. Paul, Paul says, I want that power at work with me and in me. And I'm going to tell you something. It's possible. You can have that. In fact, that's what God wants for you. He wants that resurrection power at work with you in your life. Not once, but every day. I want to know Christ. I want to know the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to tell you something, folks. You, if you don't understand the resurrection, then I can guarantee that you are living a defeated Christian life. You're, you're not experiencing all that God wants for you. In fact, Peter points this out. Look at this, the apostle Peter. He says this, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Now, for some of you, you've gone that far. That's as far as you've gone. You've given your heart to Jesus. You can remember the day you said a prayer, and that was it. But what you don't know is that was the beginning. That wasn't the end. That was the start of something great in your life. 
By his great mercy, we have been born again. Why? Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And look at this. Now we live with great expectation. Do you live with great expectation? I checked this in the Greek. Elpidozosan, that last phrase. It's expectation living that Peter's talking about here. So that when you get up in the morning, you have a great sense of expectation. This is going to be a great day. This is going to be a great week. This is going to be a great year. Expectation living is what belongs to everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. The problem is, for so many of us, we don't live in this resurrection power that the Apostle Paul is talking about. We got no expectations for the future. In fact, if anything, we get up in the morning and wish that it was all over. Can't face another day. But, but Paul's saying, hey, or Peter's saying, this is how we live, with great expectation. What are we expecting? Well, let me quickly tell you. First of all, we can expect that if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, all my sins are gone. How many people come to me and say, Pastor, I, I, I'm struggling with my past. I said, well, I'm going to tell you, God doesn't know what you're talking about. I mean, I can pray for you, but there's no need to. You've already prayed and asked God to forgive you. It's over. This expectation living, that what Jesus Christ did on the cross and washing away my sin, it's done. It's over. You don't, have to, you don't have to go back confessing your sins again. It's gone. In fact, the psalmist says it's washed away. God can't remember it. When it comes to this thing, God's got amnesia. No recollection. Doesn't know what you, you go to God, I'm so sorry. God, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. That's what we can expect. We can expect that this resurrection power comes to us in the form of the Holy Spirit, will dwell within you richly, leading you and guiding you and helping you make decisions that are in keeping with God's will. You thought you had to go through life in your own power according to your own wisdom. No. No, that's, you don't get this resurrection life. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you and now guides you through this life. And helps you with every decision you've got to make. You say, Pastor Sean, God doesn't care about all the decisions I have to make. Oh, yes, he does. He's your father. You're his child. He loves you. I've got three adult children. Every one of them, every one of them asks for advice. And I'm happy to, to give it. Because I'm a loving father. And if I'm a good, loving, earthly father, how much more loving is our heavenly father? He's giving you his Holy Spirit to guide you. You can expect his guidance in your life on a daily basis. That's resurrection living. And, and the other thing, of course, is that you will have uh, the power to have an abundant life. Alan, Pastor Alan, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, the best way to describe it to you, well, first of all, um, is that you will have a, a rich and satisfying life. But, but here's something that happened in my life. I remember this clearly. When my family, as a child, when, when, when my family started serving God and being devoted to Christ and going to church and, and, and really being sold out for God, it changed everything in our family. It changed the whole dynamic. 
suddenly we, we, had, we had wealth. We, we were doing well. Financially, we were doing well. We were doing well in, in every way. Max Weber, that, that uh, German sociologist and economist, he wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. What he's doing is he's, he's studying the effects of the Protestant way of life. Now, in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, when we talk about Protestants, we're talking about people that, that understood that Christianity wasn't just a religion where you go through all the, all the things that you have to do if you belong to that tradition. The Protestant understands, not all of them, but, but, but this, is the whole, this is the whole premise of the Protestant Reformation, is that people now have a relationship with God and they live their lives for the glory of God. So here's what Max Weber, what he discovered. He said, the Reformation profoundly affected the view of work dignifying even the most mundane professions as adding to the common good and thus blessed by God as much as, as any sacred calling. He said, Pastor, on, what did all that mean? Well, the best illustration is this. It's that of a cobbler, a humble shoemaker, hunched over his bench, making his shoes for the glory of God. Did you get that? There he is, he's making these shoes, and he's making them for the glory. They're the best shoes that you can ever get. And Max Weber says it's because of this ethic, because of this way of thinking, this way of living, doing everything for the glory of God. He says it produced an amazing wealth, a wealth that has never been seen in the history of humanity. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundant. Folks, we're not talking just about wealth. We're talking about a brand new way of living where your life is being lived for the glory of God. And when you live your life for the glory of God, folks, I'm gonna tell you, things start working in your favor. Things begin to change. Life becomes good. And I remember that in my family, how good life became. And I've tried to, to, to do that in my family, with, with, with my children, with my marriage. And I can tell you, not for my glory, but for the glory of God, that living the way God has called me to live, following in the footsteps of Jesus, has produced in my life an abundance, a rich, rich life. The reason we went to France is because Gloria and I are, are celebrating 30 years of marriage this year. And I'm going to say, I never believed I never would have believed when I first got married that it would just get better and better and better and better. 30 years later, it's better than I could ever have imagined. Why? Because both Glory and I follow and serve a living Savior, the resurrected Jesus. And we have that in our marriage. We have that in our family. The abundant life. You can expect this. This is expectation living. The power of the resurrection at work in your life. And folks, there's more. It gets better. The Bible tells us clearly in Hebrews chapter 3 that because Jesus died and rose again, anybody who's put their faith in that Jesus can come to God with all their petitions and prayer requests and needs, and God's going to hear you, and he's going to answer you. That is yours 
expectation living. When I go into prayer, I'm not going to do 12 Hail Marys and, and on and on. I'm going to talk to my father, who, whom I have access to because I put my faith in Jesus. I would not have access to the father were it not for Jesus. This is the resurrection life, the expectation living. And I go before my father and I pray and I pour out my heart and I expect him to answer me. I expect him to do the thing that he says he's going to do. That's the resurrection life. You can be assured of eternal life. When I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. And I'm happy to. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be with Christ. The Apostle Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says it's a win-win situation. I remember my grandmother talking about this very thing. Before, she was getting on in her years, and she, just, she would just say, you know what, I'm ready to go home. I'm, I'm done. I just want to go home. I want to see my mother. I want to see my son. She had the hope of eternity. She wasn't afraid of dying. Everybody who's put their faith in Christ who has this resurrection life in them, their heart is hungry and thirsty for eternity. This is ours through Christ. But there's one more thing I want to share with you. Because of this resurrection life, I know that someday when I die, I'm going to go to be with my loved ones that have gone on before. I've got stepsisters, stepbrother have gone on before. They're going to be waiting. My grandparents. Just imagine grandma's going to have a cup of tea waiting for me. Red rose with dad's biscuits. That's, that's my hope. Because of the resurrection. I know it's true. I showed you the proof. I've experienced it in my own life. This resurrection life. A life of victory. A life of overcoming. Let me just share this verse with you and then I'll close. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thank God... He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we want to say thank you today for the life that is ours through Jesus Christ. God, we, uh, we have breath in our bodies, and we're thankful for that, but even, we're even more thankful for the spiritual breath that we have in our bodies. Your spirit has come to dwell within us richly, enabling us, O oh God, to live the resurrection life full of victory. God, we pray this morning that you fill our hearts with faith to trust you, to believe you, and to live in the victory that's ours. God, we are expecting great things from you because you're our Father. We're your children. And Jesus Christ has given us eternal life. So we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Tell the person beside you, Christ is risen indeed.